20-year reunion after a bit of a hiatus. I'm David Rausch. I'm Paul Cifuentes. Yeah, I mean, we needed some time to recover from that epic reunion. It was amazing. It was. I really enjoyed myself. So did I. Props to Angie and Liz for all the work that they did in putting that together. I really liked seeing a bunch of people there, people that I was kind of expecting, people that I wasn't expecting, just out of the blue, people that, you know, frankly, I just hadn't thought about in, in years, even doing this project. You know, there's just, we yeah. came from a big class. And so you're like, yeah. hey, wow, cool. You're here. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. I, the one drawback is you didn't talk to me very much. That's true. We talked for a good 60 seconds while we were there. Yeah. I kind of felt, you know, we've been doing this online and, all, you know, and then when we see each other in person, you kind of give me the cold shoulder. And, and, you know, I was just... Well, I had to rank everybody. True. True. And Not everyone can know, be in the top know. 15, 20, or 30, you know. <laughs> Did you feel like a minor celebrity while you were there? So I think I was like customer complaints. Oh, okay. So I think people saw you and were like, oh, hey, Dave, I love the podcast. It's great. I think people came up to me and were like, you didn't reach out to me. <laughs> I'm waiting for my episode. Are you going to do more? All those types of things were landed on my shoulders. Hmm. And I just, I referred them to you. I said, go talk to Dave. And not many of them made it to me. I know. So, yep. Yep. That's so how... maybe that's like how people perceive us, right? Like you don't want to come to David with a request. Mm -hmm. You're scared to. Maybe. Oh, right. I, I don't, I don't know why. Yeah, maybe it's just my, scared of David Rush. my intimidating, intimidating demeanor, probably. It's the only thing I can think of. Absolutely. Definitely. So today, do you know who we're talking to? I do. Talking to Joe. Yes, sir. Another cool story. Yeah. His is all over the place geographically, his interests, what he wanted to do, what he's actually doing. But I think you can actually say that Joe is the founder of the Fry the Coop franchise there. Not franchise. What groups of restaurants, whatever the There you go. Okay. There, sorry. Thank you, business <laughs> pro. But even knowing that going into it. You're still going on this awesome ride and like kind of like, how does this connect? Yeah. And it does. It's yeah. awesome. But like, so I don't think we ruin it by saying that. Right. That he is, he is the owner. He's the chicken king of Chicago. <clears throat> got it. And now we've, now we've got that. Excellent. That was you. <sighs> Crap. I can't prove that. <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> <laughs> This is this is just your word versus mine exactly. on the recording on who burped. Yep. And huh. Well, just for the record, it wasn't me. But that's, that's, I don't, what, I can't you, prove that's it. what you said. All right. Are we ready? Let's get into it. Here we go. All right. So let's jump into it. Joe Fontana. Yeah. What's up, guys? Good to hey, have you here, man. Thank you for having me. This is awesome. Thank you for making the time. And thank you in advance for answering all the awkward questions that we're going to pepper, with, <laughs> pepper you with. I'll give you awkward answers. Excellent. So, so let's start with the most awkward place ever, which was high school, at least for me. And uh, describe your high school self. Tell us what you were like, your activities, kind of your personality. God, I was a little punk in high school. We were a little... Can, can we swear? We, is this where we're sure. going to swear? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> I was we'll, a, put a, we'll put a uh, mature warning a before that. <laughs> I was a little shithead in high school, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. We, uh, we just ran around and just caused trouble. We tried to party as much as we could. 
as a kid though, I was, you know, in high school, we were into like hip hop, graffiti, punk music, and just causing trouble. <laughs> graffiti. Were you a, were you a graffiti artist around the area? I tried to. So Mike Machuda and Ryan Machuda, you know, those guys kind of yeah, got, uh-huh. got us in. But we would only spray paint like under bridges and whatnot, you know, and we would try to keep it more respectful. Outside of, of graffiti, was there any any notable trouble that uh, comes to mind that you got into? Oh, my gosh. Well, we um, we used to love smoking weed all over Willowbrook High School. That was like all of our friends. That was our goal was to try to get away <laughs> with where we could get high inside the school at some point. Wow. So a moment I remember specifically is the bathrooms in the foyer. Um, I don't know how they even let this go, but there was just constant smoking in there for every lunch period. We even joked because there was a light outside and we called it the spirit because there was always lingering smoke that was like pouring <laughs> out of the bathroom. Every time you walked by, you could see the spirit. But uh so the dean started catching on that everybody was smoking in there. I mean, kids would open their backpack and pull out like a giant bong. It's like we're in a high school, like school bathroom, like what in the foyer. And so uh, since the deans were coming in so much, we got a walkie talkie system going on. And every time wow. a dean would come in, we would literally be like, Psh, you know, Murphy's coming in, you know, and you would see like 15 <laughs> kids just pile out of the bathroom, like before Murphy would even get to the door and he'd be like, okay. But I don't know if you guys remember our junior year. Finally, they shut it down. They locked the bathroom for the rest of our, 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 our rest of our junior year and our senior year. And I think, as far as I know, the bathroom's still closed to the to this day. Did you do any extracurricular activities or sports or anything, or was it mostly some of the interests that you you described just outside of school? Well, I was in the wrestling team freshman year, crushed it, got kicked off my team for being a knucklehead sophomore year. <laughs> And then from there, instead of wrestling, we went and snowboarded like all winter. I remember our sophomore year. Um, so we got really into snowboarding and uh, motocross too. So like towards my like junior year, I got a dirt bike. And uh, those were kind of my two sports, even though they had nothing to do with high school. But it was like snowboarding in the winter and, uh, you know, riding motocross in the summer. That's cool. Fondest memory. My fondest. What comes to mind? <laughs> See, this is the problem. I don't remember anything from high school. <laughs> <laughs> but I did play in a band and, uh, you know, we were talking about George Cassidy, who you guys interviewed, you know, George and I kind of hooked up freshman year. I remember a, uh, you know, I'm sitting down in like a reading class. It was like first or second day. And I was wearing like a face to face shirt. He's wearing like a no effect shirt. And he's like, you like face to face? It was like a punk band. I'm like, yeah. He's like, me. he's like, I'm like, you like no effects. He's like, yeah. He's like, can I come over to your house after school? I was like, <laughs> Sure. It was like the weirdest interaction comes over after school. He sees my guitar, picks it up and I see him start playing. And I'm like, Oh my God, how do you know how to play that good? And then from there we were like, you know, band buddies, like, you know, best friends, like playing music together. Those are my like fondest memories from high school. You described yourself as a, I'll use your word shithead. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's, I think oftentimes like a way an adult would describe a high schooler. How would you describe yourself like amongst your peers back in high school? I mean, I think back then we thought we were so cool. You know, all we want to do was like, where's the party at? Where are we partying at Saturday? You know, who's meeting up? Where are we going? We would pay homeless guys to buy us 40s. We would like go behind Jefferson Park and like drink 40s, <laughs> you know, when we're like 15 years old. You're giving all your spots up here. <laughs> <laughs> all the spots. Yeah. 
what are you most proud of from your time in high school? You know, I guess I'm most proud of just like our, our group in general, like the friendships that I think were made. I think a lot of people still have like lifelong friends out of, you know, Willowbrook high school, you know, all my good closest friends, you know, we went to high school together. You know, I only have four friends now I should mention. That's three more than I have. So that's, that's pretty good. (laughs) Any teachers stick out from your time there? Mr. White. You guys remember Mr. White? Love Mr. White. And then who was the art teacher? Mr. Fritz? Mm -hmm. Dude, Fritz. Love that guy. Both those teachers, you can just tell, just like cared about everything. And they were like also very in the moment. Were you interested in art like going into high school? Is that something you just kind of chose? Or I mean, I guess you get their graffiti. It's weird. I never, never considered myself a creative person, but I think now thinking back, like I, I am kind of with music and graffiti. Do you guys ever remember doing homework in high school? I don't remember doing one piece of homework. I'm like, how do I not remember <laughs> doing one? I had to have done one, right? I did a lot of homework, Joe. I was going to say Paul did a lot of homework. I, I did a lot of homework. Whether that was during lunch, quickly, copying off of much smarter kids than I, or uh, the night before, definitely did a lot of homework. Wow. I remember doing a lot of homework freshman year and it kind of trailing off a little bit. I started very studious and a little bit less by the end, but <laughs> Joe, is there anyone that you were close to in high school that maybe you haven't talked to in a while? Yeah, I mean like Luke Maher was like my boy. And I just saw him actually pretty recently. Still my boy. Like I consider him like a best friend, you know. But you know, over the years we have different paths. Matt Schmidt, you guys remember Biff? Oh yeah. Biff's my boy. You know, there's like a group of people that, you know, I was just really close with in high school. And now that we're all older, you get to see each other like once a year, every, you know, couple of years. Yeah. So if you go back to the, the high school mindset, where you were kind of on the day of graduation, if I asked you what your, your life goals were at that point, what would you have said? I want to be a rock star. hundred <laughs> percent. That's what I thought. I thought for sure we're going big time. Well, our friends were uh, in the plain white tees. And, you know, they obviously were very successful. And so we kind of always saw like, oh, they can do it. Like we can do it too, you know? <laughs> so we gave a good run at it. We played uh, music uh, until uh, 2010. And, uh, you know, our last show was like a Q101 show, like sold out in the city. Um, we had a little, little bit of notoriety. Which band was this? It was called Michael Lane. Okay. Yep. You're helping transition us. So let's, let's just go with it. You graduate. You're going to be a rock star. What'd you do? Where'd you go? So from there, uh, went to COD, did COD for three years, but played, played in the band. George and I were kind of playing a lot together at that time. Then I went to UIC, moved to the city, started bartending uh, at a little place called Doc Ryan's in Elmhurst. And so I was, um, you know, going to school, UIC, bartending, playing in the band. What were you going to school for? So you guys remember Andrew Grosscup? Yeah. Andrew's also my boy. He uh, was like, yeah, I'm going to go to UIC. I'm like, I'll go to UIC too. It was like, I totally <laughs> just like followed in his footsteps. He was like, I'm like, what, what are you going to major in? He's like, I don't know, sociology. I'm like, I'll major in sociology. You know? so it was kind of like, <laughs> that sounds good. Let's do that. Yeah. No one in my family graduated college. So I was like the first one to go. Took me six years to graduate though. Graduated in uh, sociology and criminal justice. And and you literally hadn't really thought about those as career paths prior to Andrew 
signing up himself or, <laughs> or, or had you always wanted to be a police officer? Like, is there anything that related to what you were learning to what you wanted to do? No, absolutely not. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was, we were playing in the band. So I thought yeah, this whole okay. college yeah, thing, yeah. like I'm going to do the college thing and I'm going to finish it because I started it. But then like, I'm going to go on to be a rock star and I'm going to be on MTV and I'm going to be famous and sex, drugs and rock and roll. Oh. <laughs> and sociology yeah yeah and sociology. <laughs> that's, that's the that's the one that's often left off people forget about it but it's sex drugs rock and roll and sociology yeah exactly does anything change when you graduate or you're still kind of just main focus is the band at that point yeah 100 percent. so uh right pretty much the summer that i graduated uh we decided we went on we went on a little bit of a tour in the summer the band was like kind of touring a little bit, not crazy, but um, we were trying to play shows out of state. And then um, the summer I graduated from UIC, we all decided we're going to rent a house, the whole band. We're going to have like a band house. We called it the Michael Lane house. We're going to build a recording studio in the basement and we're going to record our second album. So that was like the point. And we thought we're going to take some time. We're going to record a second album. And then as soon as it's done, We'll get back on the road and then we'll tour. What happened was we turned our house into a party house. We were playing shows and then our house became like the like after hours, like everyone go back to the Michael Lane house and party till six in the morning. And that lasted for five years. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. With hindsight, would you change that? Really, we should have never rented the house and we should have just stayed on the road. Because one thing about when a band shows up out of town, you get a little more notoriety. Like we played the House of Blues in California. And I'm after the show, I'm asking the guy uh, about, you know, getting paid. And he's like, kind of brushed me off. He's like, I don't know, dude. You know, he's like that. And I'm like, dude, we're from Chicago. Like we need gas money. And he was like, wait, what? You're not from California? And we're like, no, we're from Chicago. And he's like, oh my God, yeah. And he like takes out his money. He's like, dude, you guys, would you guys have a place to stay? So it was like a total different conversation from like, mm. so when you're, when you're on the road and you're like, you're putting yourself out there, people are way more apt to like help you. I think like as a band, we should have just kept touring. And I think like, you know, creating music while we were on the road and, you know, it's almost like a rite of passage, but you have to do that for a long time. So when you say like we were touring, trying to get gigs out of state, like what did it look like to be touring at that age? So we had a brown van, like 1981 with like an old trailer. So we did a tour out West. We were on the road for almost three months. I think we had to sleep in the van one day out of the whole three months. So what's cool is you end up meeting people and they put you up. So it was like an awesome experience because we kept sleeping on people's couches. And then you go to this place and you're, you know, you get hooked up with these guys and they let you sleep there. So, you know, you meet a ton of people and you're young too. It's like, you don't, you're, you're so low maintenance, you know, you get a pillow and a blanket, you go sleep in the corner of any, you know, on the floor at any place, you know, you're like, Oh, I get a pillow. This is like luxury, you know? Did you guys have shows set in advance or were you kind of like booking them as you went and trying to find places to play? Yeah, no, we did have some shows booked in advance, but then some we were booking like while we were on the road. And this is before cell phones had anything but text message. So, you know, we actually used to print out like uh, MapQuest. MapQuest, and, yeah. And I would I would have MapQuest like uh, for each show that we had booked in each city and I would have a zoom in. So there'd be like like six pages for each city 
but some of the shows, you know, it's kind of ridiculous. Like I remember we played in Long Beach and packed room, right? And they're like, you're going to go on second. We're like, great. You know, and then they're like, oh, you're going to go on third. We were like, oh, okay, that's fine, you know? And then they're like, ah, oh, you know what? There's something with the band. They need to play ahead of you guys. They're, you're, we're just going to put you on last. Like, all right, fine. So we play, as soon as the third band ends, the whole room cleans out. Like 100%. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and so that was like just us standing there. And the guy doing the sound, he's like, if you guys just don't want to play, like, you know, you know, like, <laughs> it would be just for me. Oh. <laughs> and we're like, we need That's practice. Rough. We'll just we'll just play through our set real quick. Oh gosh! <laughs> oh yeah. So but that's a, that's one that looks better on the resume. Like you played last. Like that's a good like yeah. you're headlining. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. headlined. Yeah, we were the headliners. Yeah. So toward the end of it, how did things wrap up? So I wanted to move the band to California, and I was like, like we need to get out of Chicago. Like if we're gonna really be serious about this, like let's move to California and, you know, start doing that. But, you know, it's hard because people have jobs, they have girlfriends, you know, it was like too big of like a cog at that point to like move everybody. So unfortunately the tension between living with the band, playing together all the time, we just like, you know, couldn't stand each other at that moment. We all love each other. You know, we're still all very close, but like there was like that last show we played, you know, the tension was, should have been the best night of our lives. And instead we're like all mad at each other. You know, we were kind of out of gas too. Like we were just exhausted at that point, you know, years of staying up till six in the morning and trying to grind this out. And it just wasn't, wasn't working. So in 2012, um, I packed up my stuff and moved to California. Do you know what you were going to do or you just knew you wanted to do something in the state of California? So it was a dream of mine for a while. And I figured, you know, you could make it in Chicago, you can make it in California, you know? So I figured that we would just move out there and just wing it, you know, get jabs and, you know, try to figure it out. Wow. Okay. So I literally got married and a week after we got back from our honeymoon, we got in the car and drove across country. Wow. So yeah, it was pretty cool. We got to uh, Temecula, California, which is, um, it's like a wine country of Southern California. It's right in between Los Angeles and San Diego. And so what jobs did you find when you're out there? So I was working for a staffing company, like an IT staffing company at the time. So I had like a transition from bartender to, you know, professional job, but it was cool. I learned a lot about hiring, recruiting during that point. And then uh, they let me work from home when I moved out there. So it was nice. My wife, uh, she works with kids with autism. So she could get a job anywhere, like literally anywhere. So we weren't, we weren't that worried about her getting work. From there, then I started looking for a new job and I got a job at an IT software company and um, worked in uh, uh, this software company for like three years. Okay. My job was pretty cush in a way. You know, I'd ride my bike to work. Our office was on top of a mountain. However, I found myself like super stressed out and depressed. Oh, wow. We were selling this product that I had no passion about, like zero. I didn't love the product at all. Here I am like selling it and that ended up taking up most of my life. So I just started doing some soul searching and uh, my friend's um, father-in-law, very successful guy, has one of those mansions on top of the mountain and we were at their house for a party and I kind of like, you know, I'm like, hey, Mark, can I talk to you? I'm like, I'm struggling, you know, I don't know what to do. And, you know, like clearly you figured out, you know, <laughs> kind of beat the system here. Like, you know, give me some advice. So he just looks at me and he goes, what do you love? And I was like, ah, and he's like, no, 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 stop thinking. What do you love? And I'm like, I don't know. I love food. And he's like, all right, there it is. He's like, if you 
love food. He's like, you need to figure out what you can do in food and make a living doing something that you love and you're passionate about. And he goes, you know, you'll never work another day in your life. So from there, I started kind of like brainstorming, like, hmm, how can I make money in food? I started just thinking about, you know what, I want to open up a restaurant. So I realized like, I don't know much about the restaurant business. So I got a culinary school that offered this like business of food um, kind of deal. Okay. Was Andrew Grosskrupp also in that class? No. <laughs> no. Okay. He was not. It's a good question though. And the chef kind of took me under her wing. I would meet up with her every Saturday for like six months. And she pushed me to open up a pop-up stand. So while I was in California working for this software company, I came up with this concept called Meatball Republic. And I um, would go to these uh, food festivals. I would set up like a pop-up and I would sell my meatballs like a la carte and a sandwich and sliders. So I started on this path where I'm like, I am going to open up a restaurant. I had no money at the time too. So there was a series of events where I was trying to pitch investors. I was knocking on anyone who would listen to me. Yeah. But I'm striking out left and right. And this is how naive I was. I had no money. I had no investors, nothing. And I'm like trying to sign a lease at this place. And I figured, well, if I can sign a lease, then maybe I can get someone to invest in me, you know, and then I could open up the restaurant, which is like completely backwards, you know. Seems you backwards. Really, yeah, you should really. If I take on a huge financial uh, <laughs> commitment, then maybe someone will give me money. Yeah, 100%. Terrible idea. So my friend was helping me out with real estate advice. And so then he came to me with an opportunity like, hey, there's this spot in Chicago, you know, I could help you lease it and get you some cash to get started. So all that stuff got me to go to my wife. We'd never planned on coming back to Chicago. And I was like, hey, I got this opportunity in Chicago. You know, how do you feel about selling our dream home that we just purchased and moving back to Chicago? <laughs> Are you still thinking that the spot in Chicago is going to be a meatball place? Yeah. My other question was like, why like, were meatballs a, a big staple? And did you always play around with different kinds of meatballs? I was just curious. No, yeah, that's a great question. I did. I grew up cooking you know, food with my grandma. And I always found myself like in the kitchen. And I loved like everything about, you know the ingredients. And I was always so curious, you know, I had a million questions for my grandma, like, well, why do you do that? How long do you cook that for? And, you know, I just loved it. So when I was searching for what I wanted to do in food, I was kind of finding something that was like dear and personable to me, you know, oh, yeah. it was like dear to my heart, you know, meatballs, I thought were really cool. Cause you can do like a million different flavors with meatballs. You talked about doing some culinary education. Was that both the cooking part and the business part? Yeah, it was more of the business part, but we did like, we did go over like, you know, the recipes and recipe cards. I also got some jobs in restaurants right after that. So as I was doing the pop-up, I was working part-time as like a prep cook just to learn. I didn't even care about making money. I used to take pictures of all this stuff. And like, I was like a little detective. Mm -hmm. I was trying to learn as much as I could. I probably read over 50 books from uh, the time I was like, all right, I'm going to really do this. To like, you know, kind of now, I just like was, I, I couldn't get enough information. It's funny hearing you say that first describing yourself in high school of, of kind of like, I don't remember any of my classes, I'm going to be a rock star to suddenly like you're just consuming all this information. You're taking a job without caring about the money just to learn. It sounds like that, that was never really on your radar when you were younger. And then suddenly it was your passion. No, hundred percent. 
and I still to this day have this like huge fear of being financially like secure. I think when you have kids, you know, it's kind of like, oh crap, like I got to take care of everyone. So I think like it's go time. Like the rubber has hit the road, like it's time to make money. So I think like that drove me of being just like scared of being, you know, poor. So it's interesting you say that because you're making these large financial kind of gambles, right? On starting your something yourself soon after your first child was born, where I think for some people, they would feel like now I can't do it, right? Because now I need to keep a steady job because I can't take a risk right now, now that I have kids. So what made you swing towards the one direction versus the other? Well, I didn't have any light at the end of the tunnel for my other job. And just to not have control. Everyone's had this where you sit down with your boss, you're asking for a raise. And then when you don't get a raise, it's like, dang, like I'm not in control of my destiny here. And that's a problem. Like if I want to raise, I want to work my butt off and earn that raise. Yeah, that makes sense. So your wife somehow sees your passion for it. She's like, okay, let's sell this house. Let's uproot the family. Let's move back to Chicago for a cold winter. <laughs> She's the saint. <laughs> Sounds like it. But what was also disheartening is the Meatball Republic concept kind of failed because we had signed a lease in Chicago. And the problem was the tenants were supposed to move out. It was currently occupied. They were going to leave their lease early, move into a new building, and we were going to move into theirs. We had spent like $25,000 on like 3D renderings. We had full architecture plans drawn up. I had flown back to Chicago at this point, three separate occasions. And then it was just like cry wolf. These people never moved out. So I ended up staying in California for an extra year and a half. Oh, wow. We just decided finally like, all right, we're just going to have to look for another location. My partner finds a new spot in the same neighborhood and... I go check this thing out and I'm like, ah, oh, this is just not going to work. You know, it's like this great restaurant, but we'd have to spend half a million dollars, like, you know, demo this whole place and like start over almost. And my, my partner was kind of like, well, is there anything else we could do here? And I had the moment, like, uh, was just obsessed with these Nashville hot chicken sandwiches. I was living down the street from an In-N-Out burger and I saw the lines at In-N-Out like all day long. And then I noticed this thing with fried chicken and I was like, you know, there's not really a In-N-Out burger of fried chicken. So born was uh, Fry the Coop. And then I started writing the business plan while we were gearing up to move back and signing this lease uh, for this new place. And I just realized, I'm like, this is a hit. I called my boy. I was like, I don't care where you put this thing. Like, it's a hit. How do you know, like writing a business plan for a restaurant, it's something I've never done. So where in that process did you become convinced that this, you know, that it would work? I think the great part about writing a business plan is you have to do a ton of research. Yep. As I was doing the research and writing and research and writing and research, I was like, oh God, this is a hit. It's just a gut feeling too. Growing up, it was brown fried chicken for me. That was... Uh, brown chicken. Me too. KFC. That was the... K oh, come on, Dave. Dave, don't... No, it was browns. Browns, it was like... Brown chicken all day. Oh my gosh, there. I still remember the breading. smell. Yeah. Oh, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's what brought me back being in California eating fried chicken again. I'm like, "Oh my god, I remember Brown's chicken. We used to love Brown's chicken." Like, why can't you get? I know, you know there's still like 10 of them around, but they're not they're not good. It's not the same as they used to be. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing, whether it was really good or we were just young and didn't have a great a great developed palate yet. <laughs> 
because I ate Brown's chicken and like peanut butter and jelly were yeah, my like two yeah. go-tos at that age. <laughs> so it might not have been the best. <laughs> the best judge. judge yeah. yeah. That's pretty funny. So you, you did a meatball pop-up. Did you ever do like a Nashville chicken pop-up or were you just like, I've done the research. I know how to make a restaurant. I can do this. Like, did you have an area where you could test it out? Well, so at the time we lived in this community and I knew a ton of our neighbors and prior to that I'd been testing meatballs. So it was like kind of getting normal for me to knock on your door (laughs) and be like, Hey, I got a tray full of food for you guys. That's a neighbor. That's the kind of neighbor you love. Yeah. So when I was doing fried chicken tasting, I was bringing it around the neighborhood and I would make little surveys and I would get my neighbors to like, give me feedback. But I would say that I did not know a lot about the logistics of a kitchen. And I actually realized like how naive I was now, you know, how much I really knew nothing about that. Wow. Which is probably good that you, you didn't, you didn't realize how much you didn't know at the time or you might not have done it. Right. Yeah, exactly. No. And so when, when we moved back, I get the keys to this restaurant and it's just me. Right. And just panic just hits me like a brick in the face, you know, because now I'm like, I've been planning all this time. And now I'm here by myself. And clocks ticking, I got to get this place open. And holy cow. So I just like put my head down. I'm like, all right, just do it. Just create a list. But I was smart enough to know what I didn't know. And so my first our first hire was a, a chef, a professional chef who knows the back of the kitchen. Within a month from that point, we opened. Wow. And where was that location? That's in Oak Lawn, Illinois. And it worked. That's what I'm <laughs> gathering. Yeah, it, uh, it worked. So first, this, this would be a lot of buildup if, if, if no, you're like, no, it, it failed in the first six <laughs> yeah, months. Yeah, I live yeah. in a box now behind this uh, Ace Hardware. No, um, <laughs> so the first three months, it's going good. We hired about seven people. Uh, we didn't have a sign. We really didn't have any money. We opened up this thing like on a shoestring. So as money came in, we were trying to update stuff. After three months, we get a call from Windy City Live, and they wanted us to come on the show. So we drive down to ABC Studios, do this like live segment. But literally, like the second it aired, the phone started ringing. The next thing you know, the next day, we got like a line of people out the door. So we started hiring more people. And then Steve Delinsky, Hungry Hound uh, for ABC, he comes and does a little feature on us about a month after that. As soon as that feature aired, all of a sudden we had like a line around the building and we were selling out of chicken like every probably once once a week for a little while. Like where like we would just have to like close the doors, put up a sign. You know, I would stand at the door and hand out free cards for next time and apologize to everybody that came up. Things just started getting busier and busier and busier. Towards the end of the first year, a location opened up in Elmhurst right on the corner of North Avenue and 83. Um, so I was like, oh my God, I'm not going to pass up an opportunity to like open up in our hood. That was like a game changer going from like one business to two businesses. Cause then you have to really like, you can't, you know, at some point you have to start working on the business where you can't like be in it. So um, that next year was pretty nutty from, you know, going from one store to two stores. And then an opportunity came up in the city on uh, Chicago and Ashland. Um, so in our second and a half year, almost third year, we opened up a third restaurant, then a, um, which we call it uh, location in the loop came available. Um, something we jumped on. So we opened up our fourth spot and then, uh, 
just in the past six months, we opened up two restaurants, both drive-through locations now um, that are like full service, you know, um, one in Prospect Heights and one in Tinley Park. So currently, wow. yeah, from going back eight years ago for having like this dream of like, hey, I'm going to open up a restaurant. You know, now we have uh, five restaurants and 175 employees. Wow. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. One of the great interesting things about this podcast is like looking at people's life arc from like really far back. And it's really interesting that you said, you know, not all the teachers stuck out, but Mr. White and Mr. Fritz did, because I can kind of see like that's a lot of where your passions are, that creativity that I think art allows you to express. And you're a people person. But it's really interesting to see through that that arch and, and how maybe in California that you you kind of got stuck a little bit and and frustrated because you kind of got away from those things. Yeah, no doubt. And I think for all of us, right? Like you, these experiences that you go through throughout your life, you don't realize how valuable they are and how much they're going to influence you like later on in life. And everything that I told you guys, you know, along the way, you know, some of that stuff, like you just think like, I'm never going to use this or this is dumb or this is a bad job. But like you really learn stuff that you use with you, you know, now. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned, I think that you have kids. Yep. I got three little ones at home right now. A uh, two-year-old, a three-year-old, and a five-year-old. So it is like a World War Three <laughs> every day at our house. So speaking of parenting, give me a parenting tip. So my wife is the one who's the superstar. If it wasn't for her, my kids would be like wearing garbage bags and duct tape, you know, probably have DCFS at our house like weekly if it wasn't for her. So the tip is marry well. <laughs> yeah, marry well. That is the tip. Okay. Yeah, make sure your wife knows what she's doing when it comes to children. Well, as you as you look maybe towards when they get older and, and you're and they're going to be in high school, and you think about maybe how you your experience of high school. Are there things that your parents did that you want to make sure you do with your kids, or how to parent them in high school, or are there things you want to maybe do different as well? Yeah, I think I learned what not to do for my parents for sure. <laughs> no, no, I'm yeah. just kidding. No, my parents were great and whatnot. Um, <laughs> I just, I don't remember my parents ever having like crazy conversations. Like, unfortunately, in our high school, like there was kids that like OD'd on heroin. You know what I mean? Like, my, I don't remember my mom sitting me down and being like, you know, you probably shouldn't do heroin if you get asked to do heroin, you know, <laughs> like never, you know. So I think I'm going to have those conversations with my kid that are, uh, you know, just like straight up, like, hey, you guys are going to be at parties and there's going to be crazy stuff going on. Like, you know, I'm going to have those conversations um, for sure. And then also like failing forward is a big thing we practice at the company. And I don't remember ever, you know, my parents ever being like, tell me when you failed and what did you learn from it? You know, so I'm really, I'm really going to like encourage my kids to like try stuff, fail and learn from it. And then like be open about talking about that stuff, you know, like, you know, maybe one day a week at the table, like, all right, what'd you guys try this week and how'd you fail? You know, and what can you tell me about it? That's great. Do you have something you tried this week and failed that you want to tell us about? <laughs> Every single day, literally. Um, no, I don't know. I guess I can't think of anything specifically. This week's been going good so far. Knock on wood. <laughs> all right. That's, yeah. that's, a, that's, that's a good yeah, thing. It, it's Tuesday. So. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's still some time. Yeah, that's a good point, Paul. What do you think your your 18-year-old self, that, that self that you described, you know, going to be a rock star when you graduated, is now looking at you now, where you are, 
What do you think that 18-year-old self is thinking about you? Oh, gosh. I think he would be like, what? You have five restaurants? Are you kidding me? How the hell do you do that? (laughs) And I'd look at him and be like, I don't actually know. I still don't know. (laughs) We're going to figure it out though, buddy. What's a goal that you're working toward right now? Let's say on, on a personal level. So I got a little... Little little chubby in the past uh, couple of years. A lot of chicken sandwiches, <laughs> a lot of, chicken. Lot of meatballs, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I've been running lately. Uh, I'm going to try to run two half marathons this year, and then for our Whoa. for our fortieth, I'm going to try to run a marathon. There you go. Nice. What's one thing that make you discover that makes you happier? Oh man, I just put a steam room in my house. And I just love like, it's almost like meditating a little bit, but you just go in there and like, you know, hit the steamer and just kind of clear your head and relax. And like, oh man, I don't think I want to go one day without doing a little steam action. This has been great, man. Dude. Yeah. Thank you guys for uh, thinking of me. I'm like honored that I'm even a person of interest for anything. (laughs) It was a lot of fun. Definitely appreciate you making the time and just hanging out a little bit. 